Thank you for coming. It's a joy to gather together tonight. It's, of course, a, a solemn occasion. We're here to remember the sacrifice of Christ. So let me tell you just briefly what we'll be doing this evening. Uh, we will have some songs, of course, and uh, praying. Our very own resident, uh, Phil Hoshiwara, will be giving a message to us in reference to uh, darkness. So we're looking at a theme tonight of darkness, and then on Sunday morning we'll consider its corollary uh, light. Big repetitious theme that's found throughout the scriptures. We'll also be taking the Lord's Supper, and uh, our hope is tonight that whether you're not yet a Christian, you're still considering the claims of Christ, or whether you've been a believer a long time, that we would each have an encounter with God through His Word. So let me pray to that end, and then uh, we'll start with a reading from Scripture. Father, thank you for the food that was prepared for us, the generosity of people who spent the whole day here in preparation for us. We acknowledge that every gift that we have, everything good in our life comes from you, and so we give you praise for it. Tonight, as we uh, consider the great cost of our sin, we pray that afresh and new, the reality of your love for us would overwhelm us. We praise you and thank you for Christ, for his death, and we give this evening to you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. While he was still speaking, Judah came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them time, saying, The one that kiss is the man. Seize him. When he came up, and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I have kept in the temple teaching, and you do not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to reveal a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. Immediately, they were persuaded. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before he was betrayed, and the denying of his friends. And he went out and wept bitterly. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner who they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. 
Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And all the people, then he released them for their barabbas. And having searched Jesus, delivered him to the Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisted together a crown of thorns, They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee.
So here's maybe a little bit uh, different style for some of the younger folks in here on how to maybe uh, deliver some of that. So this cursed earth is a declined abyss submerged in some kind of mist and people are blurred with their minds adrift, worthless, no righteous men immersed in their grime and sin for sure. There is no cure one can find in this, but he came not of this earth. Like what kind is this? Holy, mean he was perfect in righteousness, unheard of, totally pure, but with thighs and hips, eyes and lips, claim he's the cure for unrighteousness. Calm a storm, spoke a word, and would silence it, wiser than Solomon, dispersed of the highest wits, yet we despised him and spurned him in spitefulness. Crucify, this was birthed in our viralness. To the slaughter, nothing heard from his silent lips. What an understatement. This would hurt the Messiah's limbs. But on the cross, he would purchase and buy his kids. Debt paid, a swap occurred. Give him life for his in three days. No sepulcher you could find him in. Ain't you heard? Jesus, the word, the Messiah lives. When I learned he was accursed for my spiteful sins, if I'd turn, this was absurd. Had my mind in sprints. Yet in turn, I would turn, now my life is his. You might wonder why in the world I'm reciting this. I want the gospel to be heard in my nicest spits. Chief Cornerstone built his church from some lifeless bricks. Yeah. Gonna follow. Hello, can you hear me? All right. I'm gonna follow Dre's example and try to do this in rap if I can. <laughs> <laughs> so, my name is Phil, like Chuck said, and I'm a resident here. Um, it's my privilege to share God's word with you tonight. I am currently taking a class with Chuck uh, that he's teaching on preaching. So, if I mess this up tonight, that'll be his fault. <laughs> One of the things we're learning in that class is that the Bible is made up of different genres of literature. And one of those is narrative, or story. And the way you identify a story is by the presence of conflict and resolution. Every good story has conflict and resolution. So if I say that yesterday I was at the store, I've not told you a story, that's just a boring fact about yesterday. But if I add just a little bit of conflict to that and say that yesterday I was at the store and a young child came up to me and kicked me as hard as he could in the shin, that's the beginnings of a good story. You're going to have questions about that. What happened? Why did he do it? What did you do? You want resolution. The Bible, even though it's written by numerous authors over hundreds of years, tells a single unified story. And the conflict begins when Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebel against God. When they do so, they plunge all of humanity into the darkness of sin and death. The rest of the story is God's working and his mercy to restore that broken relationship. He promises to do it through a Messiah, a single man who we'll learn later in the New Testament is identified as Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the resolution to the conflict, the human conflict of sin and death. Now, as with any long and complex story, which the Bible certainly is, you'll have more than just one moment of conflict. It will continue to build and mount until it reaches its highest point. And that's going to be the darkest hour. It's when things can't get any worse and seems impossible, hope seems to be snuffed out. It's the darkest hour right before the climactic resolution. And this is where we're going to spend our time tonight. It's the event of the cross when Jesus, the promised Messiah, the resolution, seems to be defeated in his crucifixion. So if you'll look with me, we're going to jump into the story in Luke chapter 22. You can Follow along on the screen, or you can open up the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. We're looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 52 through 53. These are the moments before Christ's crucifixion, when the religious leaders of the Jews have come to arrest him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I just want to pull out two implications from this text. Two things we can take away. The first is that the power of darkness is subject to God. Jesus was teaching every day in the temple, and no one touched him. And they couldn't touch him. The power of darkness could not touch Christ unless God allowed it. In other words, no one manhandled Christ against his will to the cross. We read in John chapter 7, verse 30, earlier in his ministry, that they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. The cross of Christ and the hour of darkness could never have come about if God had not allowed it, had not willed it. The second thing we can take away from this text is that the power of darkness, in some sense, had a temporary victory. Jesus said, this is your hour. So in some sense, this hour belonged to the power of darkness. It keeps us from overly romanticizing the cross. What happened on the cross was wicked. If Jesus Christ truly was this perfect son of God, then there can be no more evil thing than that he be crucified on the cross. So, from this text we see two things. We have the power of darkness, and it's under God's sovereign hand. Restricted to his timing, and his purposes. But we also have to acknowledge that this hour is dark and that the most wicked deed in the history of the world is about to be committed. Following Jesus' arrest, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's condemned to die on a cross. Matthew's account of the crucifixion tells us, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the Son of God is forsaken by his Father, 
and the hour of darkness is visibly, tangibly portrayed as darkness covers the land. What is this darkness? In the Bible, darkness is a symbol for evil and for judgment. And I just want to give a few examples to illustrate this. We see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 6, Paul gives us a list of sins. Among these are sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. In verses 11 through 12, Paul encourages the Ephesians not to walk in these unfruitful works of darkness. This list of sins he calls works of darkness. He goes even further and actually says that, I'll just read it right from the text, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Paul says that before Christ, the Ephesians are darkness, and they're producing the works of darkness. Darkness is a symbol for evil in the Bible. It's also a symbol for judgment. Darkness often precedes God's judgment in Scripture. You may be familiar with the story of the Exodus, when the Israelites are slaves in the land of Egypt. God threatens the Egyptians that he will send plagues on the land if they don't let his people go. They refuse. So in the ninth plague that he sends on the land, we read in Exodus 10, 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Soon after this plague, God's judgment falls on the Egyptians, and every firstborn his life is taken. Similarly, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, we read, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Not unlike what happened on the cross when darkness covered the land. What follows this darkness is God's judgment on Israel for their sins, and their enemies destroy them. So darkness is a symbol for evil, and it's a symbol for judgment, and one always follows the other. The evil works of darkness incurs the darkness of God's judgment. Darkness receives darkness. This is the justice of God. Evil works are met with judgment. And even if we don't see that now, you can be sure that one day, every work will be held accountable before God. The reason all this talk of darkness and darkness covering the land in relation to Christ should be troubling to us is that Christ doesn't have anything to do with darkness. He is light. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In Hebrews 1.3 we read that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God is light. There is no darkness in him, and Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. Therefore, there is no darkness in Christ. He is light. The book of Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Christ is light. So we would expect him to do what light does whenever it meets darkness. Expose it. If you walk into a dark room and flip the switch, the darkness is gone. 
So what is going on, and why is the darkness of sin and judgment covering Christ, as if to extinguish the light? The simple answer is that Christ exchanged his light for our darkness. He gave up the light of his perfection and goodness to take on the darkness of our sin and death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53.5 It is not easy to look upon the crushed, crucified Son of God. Especially if we know that all of that is because of us. But it's necessary. We can't race ahead to the light of the resurrection until we have let the weight of the darkness of the cross sink in. Let me share just two reasons why we need to contemplate the darkness. The first is that the darkness shows us who we are. It is in our nature to minimize our unattractive features. We turn a blind eye to them. And it's one of the most tragic realities that many, many people have fooled themselves into believing that there is no darkness in them, that their sins are small and insignificant. They might admit that on a few occasions, their mistakes have dimmed the light to a soft glow, but they can't imagine that they have produced a darkness like the ninth plague over Egypt, a darkness to be felt. But we will never receive the healing that Christ provides if we're convinced we are healthy and have no need of a physician. We have to come to terms with the ugliness of our sin. Looking at the cross helps us to do that. Last year, a movie came out called Hacksaw Ridge. It's based on a true story of a soldier named Desmond T. Doss, who reportedly saved the lives of 75 wounded men during the Battle of Okinawa. He dragged many of them across the battlefield while under heavy fire to safety. He himself was wounded four times. Imagine if one of those 75 wounded men came up to Desmond after the battle and said, you know, you really didn't do that much for me. You didn't drag me very far. I'm not really that heavy. Probably if you had left me, I would have been just fine on my own. That would be absurd. When the rescued soldier takes in Desmond's dirt-smudged, bloodied face, when he sees the wounds that cover his body and the heavy breathing and fatigue, he knows it was for something. Desmond's battered and weary body is a sign that something needed to be done. People needed saving. If people did not need saving, he wouldn't have been on the battlefield, and he wouldn't have looked in bad shape like he did. In the same way, when we look at the cross and contemplate the darkness of that day, it becomes very difficult to minimize our sins. We see Christ's sweat flow like drops of blood in the garden. We see his soul sorrowful to the point of death. We see his body inflicted with wounds and a crown of thorns pressed onto his head. More than all of this, we see the perfect Son of God who had only known perfect communion with the Father, forsaken by him. He was consumed by the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He suffered because of us. And the darkness that covered him, that we deserved, 
Unless we think that Christ had to do all of that for someone else's sins and not our own, Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I'm telling you, if you, when you hold up even your best deed to the light of the perfection and glory of God, you're going to see all the wrinkles and the stains of the selfish and impure motives that you didn't see before. We need a Savior, and looking at the cross lets us know it. Secondly, the darkness shows us who God is. Let's read from Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is, a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The darkness of the cross shows us God's righteousness. How? He didn't sweep our sins under the rug. He had to deal with them because he is righteous and he is holy. On the cross, sins were punished. It shows the righteousness of God. A second text from Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The darkness of the cross shows us God's love. How? Just look at what Christ endured. He did that for you, and it's the deepest expression of his love. So from these two texts, who is God? He is a God so righteous that he cannot leave any sin unpunished, and a God so holy that he takes the punishment we deserve upon himself. The great irony is that the more we are able to grasp the darkness of this hour, the more light that is shed on God's holiness and great love for us. If you are a Christian, remember Christ exchanged his light for your darkness. Are you living like you're still in the darkness? Are there areas in your life where the unfruitful works of darkness still exist? My appeal to you would be the same as Paul's to the Ephesians. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's possible for you to do this because Christ himself has given you his light. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the gospel invitation is for you. Christ died for the forgiveness of sins that we might move from darkness to light. Will you turn to him and put your trust in him? Look at the cross and see his holy love. It's not a love that ignores or tolerates sin, but a love that patiently purifies and makes you into light. My prayer is that this would be the resolution to each one of our individual stories, that in Christ we would go from darkness to light. Will you 
bow your heads and, and pray with me in closing. Father God, it is difficult to look at the cross, to see that darkness, and to see the pain of our Savior. We can't imagine what he endured. He had only known perfect fellowship with you, and that was cut off because of our sins. But we are so grateful that you loved us to that extent, that you gave up your only son, that whoever believes in you should not perish but have everlasting life. God, help us to turn to you and to live in the light of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.